Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Steve Forbes talks monetary policy. Researcher Adam Thierer talks about commerce among the several states. Author Dale Carpenter details some of the odd facts of a landmark Supreme Court case. Joshua Rovner evaluates the Iran threat. And the Wall Street Journal's Mary O'Grady talks about Latin poverty and the lessons for the United States. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The Supreme Court has taken up what is probably one of the most contentious cases in recent years, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. They devoted three days of oral argument to the case. And we're going to talk about that oral argument, what options are laying before the court, and some uh, interesting arguments that were made in concert with that case. I'm talking with Clark Neely, a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, and Trevor Burris, a legal associate at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the Cato Institute filed, is it right, four briefs in the uh, the case? The Institute for Justice filed one in a, in a very specific way, and we're going to talk about that directly. But when we think about it's three days. There were several arguments presented back and forth. What was the most striking thing uh, to you about the oral argument, Trevor? Well, it seems to me that I think everyone was pretty surprised that the Supreme Court understood exactly the way that we, in the broader sense of libertarian uh, legal scholarship, had framed the issue. And they actually said, almost said things back to the attorneys that were almost exactly from the briefs that we've been filing. We filed four in the Supreme Court. We actually filed 10 total at every level of the litigation, pushing this argument. And by the time we got to the Supreme Court, it was clear that they were listening. For me, I think the most striking thing about the oral arguments in the Supreme Court was the Obama administration's inability to persuasively address what everybody knew going in was going to be one of the key questions, and that is whether there's a limiting principle to the argument they were presenting to the court for the exercise of federal power in this case. That was front and center. Everybody knew that you needed to have a good answer to that question, and the administration's handling of that issue was unpersuasive and frankly sloppy. Now, the Solicitor General, of course, was uh, widely criticized for his presentation. How would you say that his presentation was ineffective or the argument he was trying to present is simply not a very good one? Both. Uh, frankly, I think the substance of the argument was lacking. It really sounded as if he tried to address the limiting principle issue off the cuff, which you should never do in an argument of any kind, certainly not at that level. And in my opinion, sort of on a more emotive level, he didn't sell it at all. He sounded tentative and, uh, you know, as if he was sort of thinking it through on the fly. And the result was that both, I think, in terms of substance and presentation, the argument for there being a limiting principle was quite unpersuasive. Exactly. They argued, they also argued within the framework that we gave them. Immediately they were put on that, you could say, you know, backpedaling when Justice Kennedy asked them if you can uh, compel commerce in order to create it. And from there forward, he was, he was kind of on his heels. And it was very interesting, as Clark mentioned, that I think that they had limiting principles written down because he said, can you tell me your limiting principles, Justice Alito? And he said, oh, yes, Honor, we have two. And so implying that they had previously formulated these limiting principles. And when he recited these, it was almost comical in how just incredibly prolix they were. It was just this huge – it was pretty much a description of what the healthcare market is like but without – actually talking about it as the healthcare market. And we've always said that is not a limiting principle. That's a description of the healthcare market. Now, Randy Barnett, who 
dealt with one of the biggest commerce clause cases ever to come go before the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, talked about how at the beginning of this process when the Affordable Care Act was being discussed, when it had been passed, the change in sort of the culture of the discussion about the constitutional basis of this law changed pretty dramatically between the time the act was just being talked about and, of course, here, three days of oral argument. Clark, you talk about just sort of – it was a very – a sweeping change. It was. I mean, it, it, it. what you got at first, I think, frankly, was a lot of shallow, manipulative rhetoric from partisans who I would say fairly transparently were trying to create and manipulate the framework and essentially create a, an atmosphere where their narrative, namely that any challenge to the Affordable Care Act would necessarily be frivolous, would become the accepted narrative and make it essentially impossible to launch a persuasive constitutional challenge to the case. In retrospect, we know that that completely failed. It may even have backfired. I frankly think it's not improbable that the Supreme Court was listening and at least some of the justices may have felt you know, kind of offended by this rather ham-handed attempt to manipulate the framework. I think the other possible problem with it too is that the proponents of Obamacare may have bought in to their own argument. In other words, that this really is an easy case and there's no there there. As we learned, um, as the cases unfolded, nothing could be further from the truth. And whether the Supreme Court strikes this law down or upholds it, everybody now understands that this is a very close and very challenging question of constitutional law. Absolutely. I think that they, the groundwork that was laid on the frivolous argument thing, which is ironically still being played forth so they can lay the, the groundwork to call any decision that might strike this down, also a frivolous example of judicial activism, I think it made them a little bit complacent and their arguments, as you pointed out. It, you always should treat your opponent seriously and you should understand your opponent's arguments as well as they do. That should be one of the first rules of litigating a legal conflict. And I don't think they did that. I think that they, they regarded it as a you know easy case. Clark, the president of the United States took a rare opportunity recently to point out that pretty much striking down any part of the law would be a dramatic, and I believe he did use the word unprecedented, act of judicial activism. Of course, the Institute for Justice, I think, has gone some distance toward uh, making that epithet less worthy in civil discussion. The Institute for Justice has uh, their group dedicated to judicial engagement, which is to say, judge laws by their constitutional basis rather than calling judges names for acting in a certain way. Let's just be real clear. The term judicial activism except when used very rarely and with great precision, is nothing but an empty and frankly stupid epithet. What it essentially does is it enables you to express disdain for a decision that you have not explained the failings of, and probably in many cases you cannot explain the failings of. As we were mentioning before, win, lose, or draw, this is a close and challenging case under existing doctrine, and to sort of simply dismiss as activism, a decision in one direction or the other is a kind of an empty rhetorical gesture, or at least it lacks legal substance, but it can pack a very powerful emotional punch. And it seems pretty clear that that's really what the president was trying to do, is to harness that emotional punch without actually having to make a case that his own solicitor general had been unable to make persuasively in the court. And, you know, just to add one more thing, of course, I'm sure everybody knows, it's not at all unprecedented. The Supreme Court has not struck down very much federal legislation over the years, and particularly since the New Deal. And of course, most of us would say not nearly enough. 
But the idea that it would be an unprecedented act of judicial will to strike down the individual mandate or even the entire Affordable Care Act is just false. And it's, uh, frankly, uh, another example of sloppy and unpersuasive rhetoric. And the president also sort of walked that statement back just a little later and made reference to the Lochner case, suggesting that perhaps haven't we already decided that economic liberty is not like a real thing? It was a sort of a particularly um, stumbling kind of attempt to walk back because, of course, the Lochner case involved a state law and a question of something called economic or substantive due process. Those are not the issues that have been presented to the Supreme Court in the Obamacare case, which is a question of federalism, enumerated powers in the Tenth Amendment. And so for the president to try to fix one remark in which he said something wrong by then saying something that is also wrong as a matter of constitutional law, I think was almost a, um, it was sort of a wonderful metaphor for the bumbling way that the administration has tried to justify the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act and just failed to persuade at every turn. Absolutely. I also think that the confusion of, of what Clark mentioned of uh, individual rights claims under the Lochner Court for state law and the enumerated powers of the federal government and sort of conflating those all together as they have, I think it actually shows something about how the left in this country particularly views the Constitution, which they don't really care about limits on federal power. And so that a lot of times, you, we heard Lochner throughout the entire debate, is that this is a libertarian case just like Lochner. And the way that they look at the world is, uh, in Randy Barnett's phrase, it's a sea of power with islands of liberty that you can carve out. So if we're making this claim of liberty, we're cutting into their sea of power. And actually, it's a sea of liberty with little islands of power. And that's what the question was about in this case. The issue on the third day of uh, the oral argument dealt with the expansion of Medicaid. And this seems to be possibly the most difficult part for those broadly defined as libertarians to say, here's where you draw the line, because it's just not clear where you draw the line in the federal government's exercise of power related to the Medicaid expansion. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Absolutely. The Medicaid question deals with something that the federal government does all the time. It's actually one of its main courses of business, which is to pass spending bills and tell states that they don't get any money unless they change certain things, they pass certain laws. So probably the most famous example of that and the case that actually the court was dealing with as the precedent has to do with why all states have a 21-year-old drinking age, because the federal government doesn't have the power to pass a drinking age, a nationwide drinking age. They seem to think that they don't have that power, but they don't think they need that power because they can give states highway funds on the condition that they make their drinking age 21. And that's what happened in 1987 in a case called South Dakota v. Dole. And in that case, the court said that at some level in which the federal government was giving money, it would eventually become extortion. They would be forcing them to do something by giving them, by holding such a carrot out there and taking it away if they didn't comply with what they said. So in this, in Obamacare, there's a massive expansion of Medicaid. And if the states don't comply with it, then the federal government doesn't only take away the extra Medicaid, they take away all the Medicaid that the states have. And that is, for many states, the largest single item on the budget. And so now the question is, where is the line? How much money and how much coercion does the federal government have to participate in until they're actually just almost commandeering the states in a way that kind of like how the individual mandate commandeers individuals? You want to talk about coercion? The uh, You have state taxpayers paying collectively tens of billions of dollars into the Medicaid program. And then the federal government's position is, if you want to see any of that money coming back into the state, you need to get in line and comply with all of the provisions of this law. I mean, if you put that in a movie, it would be the equivalent of somebody saying, hey, that's a real nice state health care system you got there. Be ashamed to see something happen to it. It's just right out of the godfather. But yet it's hard to say 
given all of these things that the Supreme Court has said okay to in recent decades to say, okay, this is too much. Oh, absolutely. And and where that line is. That's right. As Trevor said a moment ago, it has become a matter of business for the federal government to get things done by essentially coercing the states into compliance with policies that the federal government lacks the power or maybe believes that it lacks the power, if it believes it lacks any power, to achieve on its own. So this has become a regular way of doing business in our country. It shouldn't be. Certainly the Constitution never intended to permit this. But you're exactly right. The Supreme Court has basically rubber stamped so much of this that the question really is, how far is too far? And it's definitely difficult to draw a line. I mean, the court could say something or they won't, but the line could be, well, if it's this percentage of a state budget or if it's this type of thing, they're going to draw a line. It's going to be a more abstract legal line, maybe specifically dealing with how this grant works. But the principle of the matter is that there is a line. There has to be a line because somewhere between the court has said that the federal government cannot simply command state governments to do things for it. And so if it can't do that, then at some point the money becomes a command. The Institute for Justice filed a brief in this case and sort of is this what I believe uh, IJ refers to as a have to uh, <laughs> issue because there are you – know, you have your pillars in, in which you deal with certain issues and make sure that the cases you take are squarely within that. Does this qualify as a have to? Yeah, absolutely. I, look, when the Constitution was written and ratified, the number one concern that not only the framers but people who opposed the Constitution, the anti-federalists, the number one concern they had was that they had just spent eight years throwing off the world's greatest imperial power – And they were going to turn around and potentially create a new tyrannical government in the federal government that had been created. So the challenge was create this government but ensure that it has sufficient limits on its power to prevent it from becoming a tyranny. And the way they did that or the way they intended and thought they did that was the doctrine of enumerated powers. Just list the powers that the federal government has and then – Outside of those narrow powers, you don't have to worry about it because it doesn't have the power to interfere in your life. So at bottom, the doctrine of federalism and enumerated powers is about individual liberty. And this case puts that question front and center because the federal government is literally reaching out to each and every American with a handful of meaningless exceptions and saying, by virtue of the fact that you exist, you must purchase this kind of health insurance, like it or not. And that is unprecedented. And you want to talk about unprecedented? That's unprecedented. It is an unprecedented intrusion on liberty, and it is an unprecedented act of government coercion in this country. So yes, it was absolutely a have to. And George Will wrote a recent column about this that uh, I encourage people to read. But the key term here is compelled contracts. That's right. Uh, Look, the common law history that our nation is a part of and that America draws its tradition from, um, a bedrock principle of contract law is that to be a valid contract, you have to have mutuality of assent so that if one party has been coerced into the quote-unquote contract, it's not a contract because by definition, an agreement into which one person has been coerced is not really an agreement. There's no mutuality of assent and you can't have a contract. So right from the get-go, the individual mandate, the requirement that people go out and purchase government-approved health insurance violates this bedrock principle of contract law. And interestingly, there's a parallel because to be legitimate government also requires the assent of the government. The government cannot exercise powers that have not been delegated to it by the people. So this law actually violates two fundamental principles of free will. First, government cannot compel you to do things that you have not assented to put within the government's purview, such as, for example, exercising powers not conferred to the federal government. And 
the government can't force you into a quote-unquote contract that you don't agree to because you lose mutuality of assent. That is essential for a contract. So you got no contract in this case and no valid federal authority. And those are mutually reinforcing principles, that the touchstone of which is consent. Well, absolutely. And going back to something Clark said a little bit ago, one of the most astounding things that a lot of people don't know, I would say not enough people know about the Constitutional Convention and the debates during it and after it, is that when they proposed a Bill of Rights at the Constitutional Convention, which was on September 12th, I believe, five days before they signed the Constitution, it was unanimously voted down by the states. And the reason they did that is because they thought they had created a government that was so limited that it wouldn't even be a concern. And many people know that the anti-federalists wanted a Bill of Rights, and that was one condition that they eventually assented to to ratify. But it, the reason they wanted a Bill of Rights was because they thought that the power that was granted to the government was bigger than the Federalists believed it was. So the power would be a problem. And Clark is totally right. It wasn't just the problem with enumerating rights was that you can't enumerate every right we have. And what in the background principles of law that the framers were working off of, the common law and this huge set of rights that are rights of freemen, rights of Englishmen, and contract was a huge part of that. Going back to Lord Cook, going back to the idea that there is a liberty and a freedom of contract that is protected as part of our natural rights. And those were all the things that the framers were going to leave the government out of or hoped they would leave the government out of. There are so many rights we have and contract is one of the absolutely essential ones. Of course, the Supreme Court will try to make its ruling as universally applicable but also narrow when they uh, give us something that future courts can look at, read, understand and apply. But what are the really the options uh, before the court in terms of dealing with this gargantuan piece of legislation? Paul Clement in his presentation said, hey, let's throw the whole thing out give Congress a clean slate, to use his term. But of course, that doesn't necessarily have any meaning. Well, there are many options. I think there are three plausible options. The first is to uphold the law in its entirety. The second is to strike down the law in its entirety. And then the third is to simply invalidate the individual mandate portion of the law, but leave as much of the rest of it intact as possible. It's anybody's guess whether the court will vote to strike down the law or uphold it. My sense is if they do vote to strike down the individual mandate, they will take the rest of the law down with it. And for the simple reason that there's no severability provision in the law. And this is key in basically interpreting statutes. And essentially, the doctrine says if you believe that the legislature would still have passed the law in question without the unconstitutional portion of it, then you leave the rest of the law intact. If you don't believe that's true, then you take down the entire law. So here we have no severability provision and we have a provision of the law, the individual mandate, that is at the absolute heart of the law and without which the law cannot function as intended by Congress. And I think the Supreme Court, if they strike down the individual mandate, will take down the whole thing. And I believe when the law was being passed, that lack of severability was considered a feature by the proponents of the law rather than a bug. Unknown. But it may well have been. Well, the other possibility is that this is actually interesting because it brings up some elements of judicial activism. I'm doing scare quotes there, judicial activism, which is a debate that happened in the court. And so we have the era of 2,700 page laws. Severability analysis is a little different because this thing is packed with pork, it's packed with giveaways, it's packed with tanning taxes, and no one disputes that those can stand on their own. And you can have all these strange analysis like, well, if they pass the law because this one guy got the Cornhusker kickback, which Scalia actually brought up, is that an essential provision of the law? And the thing that I think it will happen is actually 
more judicially restrained in a good way for them to strike the entire law down because otherwise they're going to go through with a scalpel and try and carve it up and have the judges decide, the justices decide, oh, this one is important. Oh, this one's not important. Oh, this one's important. And that's just absurd. And so it is the nice thing to do. It is the judicially justifiable thing to do. Just take the entire thing down and say, Congress, try again. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Clark Neely, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, and Trevor Burris, a legal associate at the Cato Institute. You can read the briefs filed in the case or listen to a watch a lot of media or recent conference on uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act recently held at Cato at our website, cato.org, ij.org as well. And Trevor, of course, here is a blogger at libertarianism.org. So be sure to check those things out as well. We expect a decision in uh, late June. And then in this space, we will have another discussion about the Affordable Care Act and the, the fallout from that ruling. The choice for monetary policy is a pretty stark and simple one, according to editor, publisher, and businessman Steve Forbes. Do you trust gold or do you trust Ben Bernanke? Money, he argues, should not be subject to the manipulations of Washington. Forbes spoke at a Cato New York City seminar in March. So let me just quickly hit on what are the headwinds that are holding us back, pushing us back when we should be moving rapidly forward. One of them is, of course, the most boring subject in the world to most people, monetary policy. You say those words, monetary policy. You say Federal Reserve, interest rates, the value of the dollar, Ben Bernanke, Alan Greenspan, and my God, it's hypnotic. No more insomnia. That'll do it. And as I've told some of you, a bit of travel advice, since you're about to be bored to tears. If you ever find yourself in an airplane, in coach, middle seat, on the runway, watching your life pass away, you want a little bit of elbow room, start talking to your seatmates about monetary policy. They'll, they'll, they'll clear a wide path. And if any of you, if any of you are single or have kids who are single, on a bad date, want out, Talk about monetary policy, and you'll never see that person again. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. But as you know, as you know, monetary policy, for all the highfalutin and fancy words about it, simply boils down the equivalent of an automobile. You can have a magnificent vehicle, but if you don't have sufficient fuel, you stall. Too much fuel, you flood the engine. Right amount, you have a chance to move forward. Same is true of an economy. Economy can have basic strengths. But if you don't supply enough money to meet the organic needs of the marketplace, and use that word organic, it's always used against us, so let's use it against our foes, organic needs of the marketplace. If you don't meet the organic needs of the marketplace in terms of money, you're going to stall. If you print too much money, economic equivalent of flooding the engine, right amount, you have a chance to move forward. And so with the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve has been on a bender since the early part of the last decade, printing too much money. And we could never have had a housing bubble if the Fed hadn't provided the juice for it. Couldn't have happened. And, and the Fed, combined with the geniuses of the Basel Accord, those of you who are into that, it's, it's not kitchen stuff, it's this uh, international regulation on banking that in effect said if you had 
government bonds, you had need no capital set aside as reserves, whereas if you made a business loan, you had to set aside 8% minimum for reserves. So we got a sovereign debt crisis. And so on and on. The Fed had gotten it right. Other central banks would have gotten it right, most of them, at least to a degree, and we'd be in a much better condition today. Money is simply a facilitator of transactions. This gets to something you, can, you understand, but people really, economists don't get it, most of them. And that is money's not created by government. Money is created by you doing transactions in the marketplace. It simply makes it easier. You know, 3,000 years ago, we had barter before we had money. So if I'd sold an ad in Forbes, how would I get paid? Probably with a herd of goats. <laughs> and then let's say I wanted to buy iPads for our writers. I'd have to go to the Apple store and with my goats and uh, see if they'd take the goats in exchange for some iPads. And the store owner says, no, I, I want sheep. So then I gotta go out and figure out how to exchange my goats for sheep. Perhaps hire a sheep herder. He wants to get paid in wine. I have white wine, he wants red wine, so I gotta figure out how to trade. It just, just becomes cumbersome. Money, money makes it easy, money makes it easy. But it's ultimately created by you, and it's a great facilitator. Because of facilitate, you get more commerce, much easier to create capital, invest in the future, bring the future into the present. It's a wonderful thing if you do it right. So we started with coins, paper, blips on a computer, but the fact of the matter is it has to be stable in value. You go to the market, you buy a pound of hamburger, 16 ounces, not 13 ounces or 18 ounces. It's fixed, fixed measure, foot, 12 inches. Imagine what would happen if Washington did to the hour what it does to the dollar. You know, 60 minutes an hour one day, 42 minutes the next, 28 the next, 82. You'd soon have to have hedges, derivatives, futures, figure out how many hours you're working. You hire somebody for $15 an hour. Now, is that a New York hour, an Illinois hour? Bangladesh hour, you shouldn't have to have handhelds to figure out cross hour rates. I mean, it just, just, it just makes life difficult. Make it simple. Make it simple. Imagine what this country would be like if every state had its own central bank, its own currency. So here we are in New York. You want to go to Virginia. Got to exchange currency, Virginia dollar versus the New York dollar. We, we, we'd still be riding horses. Uh, much lower standard of living. So money's simply a facilitator. And that's why, and I'll, I'll say it, here and elsewhere, I think in the next five years, ultimately we're going to go and do something that we haven't done since the 1970s, but which we did for our first 180 years of existence, and that is relink the dollar to G-O-L-D. And, and, and the question, the question you have to ask, the question you have to ask is, for all of its imperfections, what works better? Nothing. Who do you trust? Gold or Ben Bernanke or Alan Greenspan or Washington politicians? I mean, the question answers itself. And that is huge. Without a stable measure, it just makes life difficult. If you have malinvestment, if you can't trust your currency, what do you do? You go for existing assets, hard assets, as a hedge. That's why we had flight capital, private capital from this country. People are holding on not willing to take risks. You know, you know the definition of equity prices that's supposed to reflect the present value of discounting future income flows. Well, if you don't know what the income flows are denominated in, guess what? Depresses values today. So yeah, the market's doing well today vis-a-vis -vis what it was three months ago or three years ago. But in real terms, we haven't gone anywhere since the late 1990s, 
even though we have this great technology in this country, great entrepreneurship in this country, we saw the same thing in the 70s, saw it hideously in the 1930s. Stability works. Make it a fixed measure of value, period. Not something to be manipulated by mandarins in Washington or elsewhere. In 2003, the Supreme Court struck down America's sodomy laws in the case of Lawrence v. Texas. In Flagrant Conduct, a book nine years in the making, author Dale Carpenter challenges what we thought we knew about the case. Drawing on dozens of interviews, he analyzes the claims of virtually every person involved. He spoke at the Cato Institute in March. I came to write this book when I tried to write a law review article for the Michigan Law Review right after the decision came down and decided I needed to write a factual background section to the law review and realized when I read the decisions that there was no factual background available. If you look at the decisions of the courts, including the Supreme Court, you get at most a paragraph that says Harris County police entered an apartment where they saw two men engaged in sex that violated the state sodomy law, so-called, took the men to jail. They challenged their arrest under the Constitution's Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses and ultimately succeeded in Justice Kennedy's opinion. And I thought there had to be something more to the case than that in the background. For one thing, I was trying to get tenure and I needed to write longer articles So I started calling around to my friends in Houston, whom I'd known since the 1990s when I lived in Houston, in fact, lived there when these arrests occurred, and who I knew from my own political activity, my political involvement at the time, both in the Republican Party and in the gay civil rights movement. And I just assumed that the police had seen what they said they had seen, and that's the way I began my question with that assumption built in to one of these civil rights leaders who stopped me over the phone and said, now Dale, you're assuming that the police saw them having sex and that they were having sex. And I paused for a couple of seconds to let that sink in. And I said, well, of course I'm assuming that. That is the, what everyone believes about the case. And that was the basis for challenging the Texas homosexual conduct law and these arrests. And he responded, well, I think you need to do some more digging. So that got me thinking that there might be more to this case. How is it that police end up on the threshold to a bedroom and observe two people having sex? Didn't they announce their presence? Didn't they knock on the door? Wasn't there time to disengage before the police actually saw anything? These are the kinds of questions that had no answer and that I was trying to seek out. And then ultimately, a year ago, this April, John Lawrence finally insisted to his attorneys that he be allowed to speak about the full background of the case. He knew that he was ill, very ill, and he wanted to tell his side of the story. There had never been a trial in this case because the challengers had agreed to the version of the facts alleged by the police in a 70-word or so complaint. And I got to sit down with him last Good Friday in April, and he told me directly that the police barged in, that the men were either fully or partially clothed, 
that they were as much as 15 feet apart and were not doing anything. And I started to ask questions about why is it that the police would have done something like that? Well, one immediate answer is that this kind of thing could happen in any case, anytime the police are present in any home. They could come up with charges that aren't really based in fact. But there seemed to be a special reason why the police might have charged falsely in this case. And a number of those factors, I believe, were at work when they entered John Lawrence's apartment that night. One of them is that they were certainly angry and frustrated that they had been called to the apartment on a false report of a weapons disturbance in a very complicated uh, series of events that are also described in the book. But the second, and this is very clear from my interviews of the police officers and from John Lawrence and Tyrone Garner themselves, they were, their homophobia was aroused. Their very idea that not any particular act was illegal, but the status of being gay was illegal and allowed people to be targeted simply for being rather than for doing. The homosexual conduct law in Texas should have been called a homosexual status law. That was revealed, for example, in the fact that the Harris County Sheriff's Office, which is the department that these officers were part of, refused to have a non-discrimination policy and had no gay or openly gay sheriffs in the department. It refused to train officers in the way that it would do for other groups that the police would occasionally encounter to say, when you encounter these people, you do not call them by anti-gay epithets. You treat them respectfully and with dignity. The Sheriff's Department refused to do that. When Anise Parker, whom I also interviewed and is now the mayor of Houston, Texas, the first openly lesbian mayor of any large city in the entire country, when I interviewed her for the case, she said that back in the 90s she had conducted trainings for Houston Police Department officers. And in contrast to the Harris County Sheriff's Office, it was important for the Houston Police Department to actually learn about the communities they were policing and to try to minimize rather than to exacerbate tensions and hostility between the community and the law enforcement authorities. And she used to open up these training sessions for these fresh recruits in the Houston Police Department by asking them, how many of you believe that it is illegal to be gay in Texas? And every single one of these recruits raised their hands, most of these sessions. It had somehow seeped into them that this very status was illegal, that you didn't really, you could assume that some illegal conduct had occurred, write whatever you wanted to on an offense report, and expect that it would be believed, or indeed that it would never be challenged because of shame and because of stigma. Knowing what we now know about Lawrence versus Texas in no way diminishes or tarnishes the importance of this decision as a defense of individual rights and freedom against the power of the government. Instead, if I'm right about what happened in this case, the case was worse than we ever knew. It was not simply about a bad law or an unconstitutional intrusion on the private lives of citizens. It was about a perversion of the law, a corrupt enforcement of an unconstitutional law. It meant that gay men and lesbians could not 
did not live by the same rules that the rest of us live. It's akin to having two different speeding limits for people. And that should be troubling to a constitutional republic that respects individual freedom. In the months since the International Atomic Energy Agency issued its November 2011 report, which raised new questions about Iran's nuclear program, the debate in Washington, D.C. over Iran has grown hotter. Policymakers, politicians, scholars, and pundits are now offering wildly divergent predictions and prescriptions. Joshua Rovner of the U.S. Naval War College discussed what motivates Iran and the policy implications at a Cato conference on Iran in March. My bottom line is that uh, deterring Iran, even a nuclear Iran, is a relatively straightforward proposition. But deterring Iran after it has been hit with a preemptive or preventive or delaying strike, especially from Israel, will make it much, much harder in the future. This is the reason why bombing is a bad idea. A little bit of theory is necessary to explain my argument, then I'll get into the, the nitty-gritty. Iran is the latest example of a long-standing problem. That is, how do you deal with an emerging nuclear power? Deterrence theorists and scholars and observers have worried a lot about new nascent nuclear powers for a number of reasons. They have incomplete and immature security protocols. We're not sure that they can be reliable custodians of the stuff. They have uncertain command and control arrangements. New nuclear powers are usually flush with nationalism. You know, achieving the nuclear threshold is a moment of intense national pride, and nationalism can be a very dangerous animal. And new nuclear powers tend to overestimate the benefits of having a nuclear arsenal. Right? They, they make this technological breakthrough, and they think, wow, we've got it. We can do a lot of things in the world with our newfound nuclear strength. Actually, they can't do that much with nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons have very little use beyond basic deterrence, and it takes nuclear powers some time to learn that. But the learning process can be dangerous. So those are reasons why we worry about them. Now, up to now, the debate about how to deter an emerging nuclear power has focused on the question of whether or not they are rational. Right? Deterrence theorists say, in order for deterrence to work, you have to face a rational adversary who weighs costs and benefits. And some have argued that the nature of the Iranian regime, as Jamie was saying, is such that it doesn't weigh costs and benefits in the way that we weigh costs and benefits. They're not motivated by old-fashioned Cold War calculations of costs and benefits. Right? In the summer of 2006, for instance, Bernard Lewis wrote in the Wall Street Journal that according to his reading of Islamic text, and, and I'll quote here, August 22, 2006, might well be deemed an appropriate date for the apocalyptic ending of Israel and, if necessary, of the world. Right? He had gone back and he had scoured Islamic texts and he said, wow, this might be the date where they decide to just end the world. They've got these apocalyptic notions. Happily, it didn't happen. Right? We made it to August 23rd. 2006. But the sense that this regime is not rational continues to linger, as well as the idea that it is insensitive to our deterrent threats. I think this is wrong. I think that we can deter a nuclear Iran. I think we can deter all of the threatening actions that I laid out earlier. It will take time, it will take patience, it will take a lot of hard thought and hard work. 
but it's a relatively straightforward problem. We've done deterrence in the past against equally bizarre regimes. We can do it against Iran today. First, we can deter Iran from rapidly expanding its nascent nuclear capabilities. Some Iranian leaders, like President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, use very heated rhetoric, really over-the-top rhetoric. But other Iranian leaders treat him with disdain. A lot of Iranian leaders are frankly worried about international prestige and international respect. Right? And if we carefully and continually promise them that a rapid expansion of their nuclear effort will lead to international opprobrium, they might slow down. In fact, I think it's likely that they will slow down. Second, we can deter transfer to proxy actors. Right? One way that we can do this is by disabusing of Iran of the notion that it can remain anonymous. One thing that people worry about is that Iran could quietly and covertly deliver nuclear hardware to Hezbollah, right? and that it would be safe as long as it could do this anonymously. We can convince Iran that it can't do it anonymously. Just think about it. Think through the actual chain of events. If a nuclear blast went off against Israel or against the United States, who would we immediately look at? Without question, without hesitation, Iran would be number one and Pakistan would probably be number two, right? We could also indicate to Iran that we've actually made some pretty substantial developments in the science of nuclear forensics. That is the ability to trace fissile material back to its origin. Right? Now there's debates among physicists about how far along we are in this process. All I care about is telling Iran that we're going at a pretty steady pace and planting a seed of doubt in their minds to dispel, again, the notion that they can remain anonymous providers. Third, we can be confident about deterring use as cover for conventional aggression for a couple of reasons. One, Iran's conventional capabilities are pathetic. They have no power projection capabilities of any note. They have a decaying conventional capability. They're reliant on 1970s hardware that they purchased under the regime of the Shah. Right? They've basically sacrificed spending on their Air Force because they know they can't keep up. Right? Their surface navy is just not very capable at all. Iran can cause some problems. They can lash out a little bit, but they can't launch anything like a sustained conventional operation, especially not against countries like Israel or the United States. So I think that we exaggerate this concern. Well, what about the danger that they increase their support for proxy actors? I think this concern is overblown. As a lot of observers have pointed out, Iran's history with proxy actors has been tepid at times. When they feel heat from the international community, they pull back from Hezbollah. Right? And I don't know why that would change just because they had a very small arsenal of nuclear weapons at their disposal. I think that they would still respond to heat. I see no obvious reason why not. Finally, the United States can deter the use of weapons in war. As I said, this is the one case in which we can make a serious and unambiguous threat of reprisal. And I think that threat would stick. Now, unfortunately, so, so my bottom line is deterrence is, is not only possible, but it's likely, and it can succeed. It'll get a lot harder if Israel launches an attack. It'll be a lot harder to deter all four kinds of behavior. In the aftermath of a strike on its nuclear complex, Iran will have gigantic incentives to disperse and conceal its program. They will basically mimic the actions of Iraq after 1981. This is what we don't want. It will become more covert and harder to deal with in the future. It will be harder to deter transfer to proxy actors for the same reasons. Iran may believe that to reduce its vulnerability to subsequent strikes, better to give the stuff to Hezbollah. It would make sense. 
In the aftermath of the strike, it will be harder to deter the use as cover, simply because it will be harder to assemble and maintain an international coalition to block Iranian expansion, especially among key regional actors. The Gulf states come to mind. They will face significant pressure to move away from the United States, not towards it. Finally, and, and most worrisome, it'll be harder to deter the use of nuclear weapons in war. Deterring the use of weapons requires two things. It requires threats of reprisal, and it also requires assurances. We always forget this. There has to be an assurance attached to the target of the deterrent threat that if you restrain yourself, we're not going to hit you anyways. Right? You will not be targeted as long as you subdue yourself. It'll be almost impossible to issue anything like a credible assurance in the wake of a strike. Iran would have no reason to believe us. State officials have spent the last 15 years attempting to devise a regime so they can force out-of-state vendors to collect sales taxes. But the Supreme Court has ruled that such a cartel is not permissible without congressional approval. And there are moves afoot to tax our internet transactions at the federal level. At a Cato Capitol Hill briefing, researcher Adam Thierer of the Mercatus Center pointed out that there are ways to promote regular commerce without punishing it. I want to step back in this debate. This is a very complicated issue. I've been covering this now for the better part of 15 years, uh, going back to my time at Heritage, where I published numerous papers on it, testified uh, in front of the Internet Tax Commission on this in 1998 or 9, wrote a book for Heritage on uh, federalism and interstate commerce and technological issues that related a lot to this issue. This is complicated because really you have to go back to the very founding of our republic to understand why this issue is so contentious. You have to remember that America's Constitution is not really our first Constitution. We had something called the Articles of Confederation before that, as most of you know, but it did not last very long. It only lasted about, I think, 14 years. And we promptly abandoned it after we realized that uh, the downside of that uh, was that sort of untrammeled states' rights approach was not going to ultimately help us breed the kind of union we're looking for, specifically the sort of commercial union we were looking for. And the real stroke of genius in our Constitution, well, there were many forms of genius in our Constitution in terms of human rights and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, what's often forgotten is that our Constitution created the world's first free trade compact. And we have a free trade agreement among the states, thanks to the Constitution, that sets out certain guidelines about how commerce among the states will work. And this was really, again, why we abandoned the Articles, because Articles of Confederation did not have provisions that helped deal with the interstate trade disputes or tax disputes that might arise. And so the Constitution handled this in various clauses, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, the Commerce Clause, Article 1, Section 10, the Compacts Clause, a variety of other provisions in the Constitution dealt with this. So why is this important? Well, we have to flash forward a long time, come all the way up to about the 1930s, when the states decided they needed to start devising alternative revenue mechanisms during the Depression era because of the fact that other types of revenue mechanisms were failing. So along came the sales tax. And at first it was pretty small, and it was uh, fairly small for a long time. Up around 1950, it was still only averaging about 1, 1.2%. But it grew and grew and grew. Today it's somewhere a combined rate of over 6 or maybe more than that now. I'm not sure. But the fact of the matter is, is that what made it so complicated was that once the interstate market really started robustly developing in America, 
we started having real tensions with our sales tax because our sales tax was taxing goods at point of sale and most transactions were taking place at a counter in a certain store, department store, whatever else. It's fairly easy to administer this tax system. So when interstate commerce came along and so-called remote sellers, interstate vendors of commerce came about, there were some real complications posed for our sales tax system. And many state and local governments said, well, we need to be able to trace and tax all that activity in the name of tax fairness. So this really first became a huge problem with regards to things like catalog and mail order sales. And it was forced, uh, the courts were forced to deal with this ultimately. And along came a series of cases that dealt with so-called nexus, or the physical presence standard by which a state would know when they could actually tax or not tax. And the court laid out some guidelines for this because Congress refused to essentially act in this front. So a body of so-called dormant commerce clause jurisprudence started to develop, and today we're still stuck with it. We had cases starting in the late 60s going all the way through 92 and some other decisions in between that dealt with this, but basically the law of the land is nothing that really Congress has passed or that the states are dealing with. It's really what the courts have handed down in a handful of decisions. And so we have a situation today that is really quite a mess. Because Congress has, so far at least, decided not to act, remain fairly silent on this, the states have moved aggressively to try to find a way to equalize tax treatment in the name of tax fairness, trying to impose the same sorts of destination-based taxes on interstate vendors that they impose on Main Street uh, bricks and mortars vendors. And you've been left with this, uh, this real trouble about how we're going to do this in a fair and constitutional fashion. Now, why is it that the states can't do this? Well, the states can't do this because, of course, these companies who essentially administer the sales tax system on their behalf are obviously not in their states, or else they would have to collect. But when they do not have the sufficient nexus or physical presence to allow the states to do this, the states have sought to try to impose it anyway in a variety of ways. But the courts have, again, held the line on that. So what the states really want is some sort of a blessing from Congress to essentially go ahead and find a way to impose these taxes in a constitutionally permissible fashion. They want to also do this in conjunction part of a multi-state compact or accord. These are not unprecedented. We've had other multi-state compacts dealing with things ranging from agriculture policy to steel policy, a number of other things, water conservation. But the really tricky thing here is, again, going back to our founding period, you're dealing with something that is unambiguously interstate commerce in nature. So goods that move over mail order catalog or now the internet obviously have a clear interstate component. And many of these companies are, are interstate vendors in character. The states cannot do this, at least in my personal estimation, they cannot do this without the blessing of Congress. And so we've had legislation introduced now for many years that would essentially grant that blessing to the states. The most recent bill introduced by uh, Senator Durbin would do this by, uh, I think it's the Main Street Fairness Act, and that would basically give the states and localities the power to do this as part of this compact. So, is this a good idea? Well, for many of the reasons that Dan Mitchell already uh, talked about, I think there's some real serious concerns that uh, some of us in the free market community have with this sort of an approach. My concern begins, uh, as the title of my paper with Veronique Forcato implied, that, you know, the first principle in this debate that people are always fighting about is tax fairness. But tax competition is every bit as important as tax fairness. And also, when it comes to tax fairness, there's many other ways to skin that cat. I mean, let's be clear. In fact, many years ago, I remember working closely with a lot of folks in the retail community trying to get them to understand that, look, we'll all come to bat for you in state capitals and help you fight burdensome taxes that you pay that others do not. Because let's be clear, there is a bit of an unfairness here in the sense that mainstream vendors are currently paying some significant tax burdens. 
and maybe some other players are not. But that does not justify and by any means necessary approach to getting this job done or achieving fairness, especially when other constitutional principles are at stake or tax competition is a value that we care about. And therefore, I think the better approach would be for retailers to understand that ultimately what you're doing when you endorse a multi-state tax accord for the purposes of getting taxes imposed on the new kid in town, the internet, is you're probably shooting yourself in the foot in the long term. Because of course you yourself may be a vendor of uh, interstate commerce in other ways, or you may be setting up a, a bit of a Frankenstein monster that you think you can control or at least keep in check, when in reality there might be better ways to go about dealing with this problem. From the days of Adam Smith, the question of why some countries are poor and some are rich has been hotly debated, and we still don't have clear and obvious answers to that question. Wall Street Journal columnist Mary Anastasia O'Grady says the issue of underdevelopment and the bad policy that causes it can be boiled down to three things, populism, protectionism, and prohibition. She spoke at a Cato New York City seminar in March. The fashionable explanations for Latin American underdevelopment are things like corruption, lack of education, poor infrastructure, and my personal favorite, a shortage of money. Which, if you can believe it, we are told causes poverty. We are told that it is a shortage of money that causes poverty, and this means that if we give countries money, poverty will go away. And of course, the great development economist, Peter Bauer, who was also the winner of the Cato Institute's Friedman Prize in 2002, famously pointed out that a shortage of money is not the cause of poverty. A shortage of money is poverty. But I digress. All of these things, corruption, lack of education, health care, poor infrastructure, even poverty, are symptoms of bad policy. And what about that policy? Well, I like to sum up the bad policy of poverty by the three Ps, populism, protectionism, and prohibition. And if you ever find yourself confused about why rich countries like Argentina and Venezuela are poor, just refer to the three Ps. You cannot go wrong. Believe me, I tested the theory. Most of us already know this. We know that populism, protectionism, and prohibition are all bad for development. And these are the things that we proponents of liberty often find ourselves talking about when we struggle to make things better off. How to open markets. How to keep politicians from turning us into dependents of the state. And of course, how to change drug laws so that organized crime doesn't replace our democratic institutions, something that is a big threat in Latin America. I'm fine with all that, and that's one of our roles, but I'm increasingly convinced that we're still very far from the source of our troubles when we address threats to liberty in this way. What I've come to appreciate is that just as corruption, lack of education, poor infrastructure, and poverty are byproducts of the three Ps. The three Ps are also a byproduct of something else. 
something else much more fundamental that has gone wrong in the region and that also threatens this country. So I ask you for a minute to just focus on two things. First, to borrow a fundamental principle of the Cato Institute, ideas matter. I think we all agree on that. To be more specific, which ideas prevail in society, which ones are considered legitimate and moral, that's what matters. Secondly, focus on the fact that without entrepreneurship, a society cannot achieve prosperity. Impossible. Now look at Latin America. If you look past the immediate problems that I was just outlining, you will find that it has been the ideas from academia and from intellectuals more broadly that have played the key role in undermining the entrepreneurial culture in Latin America over the past century. Ideas that are hostile to entrepreneurship are not only part of the popular culture, but they are embedded in the constitutions of these countries. These ideas hold that profits are morally suspect. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is what strikes directly at the heart of property rights and therefore prosperity for hundreds of millions of Latin Americans. So how did this happen? Well, let's first start with the famous John Maynard Keynes, easy, calm down, quote, describing the power and influence of intellectuals. And this is a direct quote. This is a, in the very end of uh, the general theory. The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority, we won't mention names, who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. I am sure that the power of vested interests is vastly exaggerated compared with the gradual encroachment of ideas. This is a truism that Latin Americans did not understand until it was too late. And it is how we too will lose if we don't pay attention to the importance of making the moral case for the market. Let me show you how I know it's true. Latin Americans, I should say, as you probably know, have no problem being entrepreneurial. Immigrants to the US have a long history of starting their own businesses once they've landed in this country. So how come they don't display these same skills at home? I submit to you that it is because the dominant ideas in the region over the last century have been hostile to entrepreneurship. And if you doubt this, have a look at the new book by the Mexican historian Enrique Krause titled Redeemers and subtitled Ideas and Power in Latin America. The book profiles 12 individuals who Krause believes represent the major political ideas in the region from the middle of the 19th century through the 20th century. He starts with Jose Marti and ends with Hugo Chavez. He includes profiles on Eva Perón, Che Guevara, Octavio Paz, who, by the way, toward the end of his life was 
a liberal, but was not a liberal for most of his life, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and then Bishop Samuel Ruiz, who sort of laid the groundwork for the uh, uprising in Chiapas in 1994, and Subcomandante Marcos, who was actually the leader of the uprising uh, there in Mexico. These individuals, Krause tells us, were the ones who sowed the dominant political ideas over the 20th century. No name listed here is an entrepreneur, an innovator, a builder, or a merchant. And these idea men, and one woman, promoted collectivism, equality, and the socialization of risk. It was the dissemination of their ideas that molded the norms and values of the rule of law. The power of ideas was well understood among intellectuals in the left throughout the 20th century. They made it their business to get control of academia. And they succeeded. And Venezuela is a prime case where they got total control of the education system through the universities. And uh, I think uh, they're reaping the, the gains from that right now. And in the classroom, a new narrative emerged. It gave the moral high ground to the state and denounced the market as immoral. Millions of Latin American students have been marinated in this morality, which views government as the source of justice and the market as greedy and wrought with failure. This had a profound effect on the political climate in the region. As Enrique Krause shows in Redeemers, intellectuals opposed to classical liberalism, working in the name of something that he calls Latin American nationalism, began to appear in the earliest years of the 20th century. Krause believes it was a backlash against the US victory in the Spanish-American War. But whatever the reason, nationalism's economic counterpart, which is socialism, then got a huge boost during the Great Depression. The Smoot-Hawley tariffs hit the region hard, and Latin American policymakers retaliated by closing Latin American markets. For those who had resisted this nationalism and, and tried to continue the fight for liberalism in the region, American protectionism made it more and more difficult for them not to give in. Now, today the ideas of Che Guevara and Eva Perón are discredited, and modern socialists, and by those I mean people who reject communism and fascism but favor some other form of collectivism that doesn't go by those names, they do not attack private enterprise head on. That would be suicidal because the market has created so much prosperity. If you doubt this, I refer you to The Virtues of Capitalism by Arthur Selden, who was the brains behind the Thatcher Revolution in Great Britain. He does a magnificent job of outlining just how much prosperity the world enjoys today because of the market economy. Most socialists concede Selden's point. They recognize that the market economy is what produces prosperity. So they ask us not to look at the wealth of nations, but instead to look at what they call the morality, or perhaps more accurately, the immorality of the inequality produced by liberty. This, for socialists, is the soft underbelly of the market and the best place to attack.
Now, in societies where the morality of the market is well understood, vigorously defended, and imparted to young minds, the ethics of collectivism doesn't do very well. But Latin America can show us what happens when the morality of the market is not defended. And this is a very important point. Even if a society makes economic gains by adopting pro-market policies, if the population is not convinced of the morality and legitimacy of the market, it will want to destroy what it has achieved. And I think the best evidence of this is seen in Chile over the past year, where students have been running wild in the streets, making all kinds of demands from the government, and claiming that those who won't give in are immoral. What is tragic and most disturbing is that the establishment in Chile has not been able to defend the market, starting with the president. Instead, it's back on its heels making excuses. I think we can be thankful for Jose Piñera and a small group of like-minded Chileans who are still carrying the torch, but they are greatly outnumbered. This is in Chile, the poster child of our ideas, the place that has done the most to reduce poverty in the region. I mean, it's really unbelievable, but I remain convinced that the problem here is that while many Chileans are beneficiaries of the market system, they have not been convinced of the morality and the legitimacy of private property ownership and differing outcomes. Outside Chile, things are even worse. In most of the rest of the region, intellectuals brought this idea of equality as the highest goal from their ivory towers to big government through the region's constitutions. These constitutions, which are perpetually rewritten by academic and intellectual elites, always strive to make state-sponsored equality the law. And of course, who can object when the goal is to make it law that the poor child should have as much as the wealthy entrepreneur? The problem with a constitution written with the objective of creating quality of outcomes is that it cannot guarantee individual rights. And that means that the world that Arthur Selden described, that world of glorious prosperity, is not possible because you cannot have it both ways. Latin American constitutions are hundreds of pages long. They have objectives like guaranteeing national development, eradicating poverty and substandard living conditions, promoting well-being. The 1988 Brazilian Constitution gives citizens the constitutional right to education, health, work, leisure, security, social security, protection of motherhood and childhood, and assistance to the destitute. The Constitution guarantees minimum salaries, year-end bonuses, overtime, and vacation pay. The culture section of the 1988 Brazilian Constitution charged the government with protecting Brazil's cultural heritage by means of, quote, inventories, registers, vigilance, monument protection decrees, expropriation, and other forms of precaution and preservation. And my favorite is, in the section dedicated to sports, the Constitution specified that, quote, the government shall encourage leisure as a form of social promotion. 
That's in the Constitution. So if you think about all this enshrined in the Constitution, you can easily see that the government not only has the power, but the obligation to use coercion to reach its goals. And this is the fundamental problem of Latin development. There's a lack of liberty which emanates from constitutional mandates that intrude on every aspect of human action. Now, I just want to say one thing about people outside of the intellectual elite. Of course, what I'm describing originates with the intellectual class, but it's also clear that many of the ideas in Latin America gained a lot of influence because the business class joined in. And I want to give you an example of what happened in Venezuela. The 1961 Venezuelan constitution was, by most accounts, a fairly sound document. But that didn't mean that factions, as Madison might have called them, didn't have reason to try to pick it apart. And they did. For 40 years, the Constitution was under assault, particularly private property rights. And of course, the left wanted to undermine the rule of law and property rights, but the business community helped. And here's what Carlos Ball, who's a Venezuelan journalist, now lives in the United States, very good on this subject. Here's what he wrote about the slow deterioration of property rights in the 1961 Constitution. See if you think it sounds familiar. Many in the business community did not rebel against the growing state intrusion because they saw it was easier to convince one cabinet minister than a market of consumers. I'll never forget watching Venezuelan businessmen cheering the nationalization of foreign oil companies, not realizing that the politicians would soon come after them with more controls, regulations, and taxes." Close quote. And of course, we know that the government of Hugo Chavez has subsequently done much worse. So in closing, I just want to say that when the state gets the moral high ground in matters of personal decisions and property rights, there are no end to the steps that it will take to contain liberty in the name of social justice. And if you need an example, just look to the region to the south. Once this happened, standard of living will necessarily decline. Now, you may think that can't happen in the United States. I am nowhere near as convinced. The American dream of owning a home turned into a nightmare in the recent financial crisis. In American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Home Ownership, a new book from the Cato Institute, author Randall O'Toole demonstrates how the clash between federal and state housing policies increased the severity of the housing bubble and argues that eliminating these policies would have a positive impact on home ownership. American Nightmare will be available nationwide and at Cato.org in mid-May. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.